Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast, where we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. My name is Allison, and today I am recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Unfortunately, due to some miscalculation of time zones, I am recording today solo, but Karen will be back next week. If you haven't yet listened to or read the episode she put together last week about the Rare Books and Manuscript Section Conference, definitely go check it out. If you're like me and rare books and special collections aren't usually your thing, this episode is still really relevant for you. In it, Karen discusses the institutional racism she encountered at the conference, the ways organizers failed to address it, and the impact that this had on her and on others. Today, our guest is Nico Stratus, who has been heavily involved in responding to Megan Murphy's event at Toronto Public Library. They have written extensively about the event on Twitter at Nico Stratus and in an article for Huffington Post titled, Someone Tell the Media That Trans Folks Were at the Megan Murphy Protests Too. Nico generously contributed a clip to our episode on Toronto Public Library and Transphobia, episode six, if you want to go back and check it out, and agreed to chat with us more in depth about these events today. In addition to this work, Nico hosts a podcast about Sleater Kinney called Words and Guitar with Their Girlfriend, runs the Headless Owl Records record label, and writes personal essays about their experiences as a trans person, paired with selfies, which you can find on their website, nicostratus.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I will note that the sound quality of the last two minutes of the interview is not great, but Nico says some really interesting stuff, so I could not bear to cut it. Hang in there with us all the way to the end if you can, though, and I have some info about our next episode before the uh, this one ends. podcast thank you again can you start by telling us how you heard about the Megan Murphy event at Toronto Public Library and your reaction when you learned it was happening yeah it was I had seen it on Twitter which is where everybody else had kind of seen it Megan Jones um was the first person to tweet about it had sort of tweeted out a photo of the poster for the event on like a signpost somewhere Mm -hmm. uh so I saw that and retweeted it and was like hey, I think that this is a bad thing that's going to happen at a library, you know? Yeah. Um, and then that was on a like, Friday, I believe. I was trying to remember, and I was trying to go back through, but the problem is, is I've been tweeting so much lately that like trying to go back <laughs> through my own timeline is a total nightmare. I feel you, yeah. Um, so I think it was a Friday, because I remember it just being just before the weekend, and I remember showing it to my girlfriend and just being like, uh, I'm not looking forward to this and not really realizing what was like, I had no idea what was going to come, you know? And then by the time Monday rolled around because enough other people had sort of picked it up. And at the time I had a smaller Twitter following than I do now, not that it's exploded, but it's definitely grown by a few hundred in the last couple of weeks and days. And so from there, I just sort of started getting picked up more and more once, uh, like when Gwen started tweeting about it, when Alicia Elias started tweeting about it, um, that's when it really started to blow up. Um, but it was Megan Jones that I first saw. They were the first person to uh, uh, tweet about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said you had this feeling of, oh, ugh, this is a bad thing for a library to be doing. 
So do you want to expand on that? Why is it so problematic for public libraries to be hosting these kind of transphobic speakers? I mean, it's one of those, it's a difficult one because we, we've been mired in this argument about free speech now for weeks on end. And, you know, we do have free speech in Canada, um, but there are consequences for free speech, which we're seeing now in the Don Cherry thing unfold. Um, but also, you know, to present that at a library, it really gives it an air of legitimacy that it doesn't deserve. I mean, she frames her argument as women getting together to talk about their rights, which if you were to, if you were to say just that phrase to somebody, that sounds totally innocuous. Of course, women should gather to talk about their rights. That's, that's a completely fine thing to do. What they're doing though, is they're getting together to talk about how um, Bill C-16, which is something that Megan Murphy campaigned against, which is part of the Human uh, Rights Commission of Canada. Like it's, it's a, it's, we have our rights protected by the Human Rights Code of, of Canada. Um, but so what she's doing at these talks is not get women getting together to talk about their rights. It's women getting together to talk about how trans people are erasing women, according to them. From the get-go, it's a disingenuous selling point. It's not women getting together to talk about their rights. It's people getting together to talk about how trans people are coming for them. You know, that sets a dangerous precedent. We've long been painted as predators. You know, I've been called a man a lot, and I get, I get told that I'm a man that's seeking to take space away from women. Nobody's even ever bothered to ask me where I want to go to use the washroom. They just assume that I'm trying to take everything that has the word woman attached to it, that I want to take it away which is not true. We all want women to feel totally safe, but women includes trans women. We want, you know, trans women to feel safe too. And it's, you know, when a library presents and gives space to somebody like that, they're giving the way that she speaks and the things that she has to say an air of legitimacy. And, it, you know, I think when people see that and they see, oh, she's speaking at the library, you know, that leads them to believe that she's someone to be listened to and paid attention to, as opposed to like, just, you know, a right-wing nut job that sort of needs to just go away. Yeah. Well, and it felt, that felt so obvious too once SFU pulled the space for the event there. And then right away they were able to afford this super fancy ballroom at a hotel. It's not like they're, you know, I work at a public library and, and we have different rules about who can use our spaces. And our priority is nonprofit groups get to use the space because they can't afford to use other spaces. And that's clearly not what's going on here. Well, like, it's really about that legitimacy that that kind of a space. She's using the library. And I told them that when we, when we did the board meeting in, you know, in other conversations that I've had with board members of the TPL and TPL staff, you know, they're being used mm -hmm. and, you know, they're going to end up being slagged at the end of the day. Although Vickery Bowles, the city librarian, who through access to information, we all figured out how much money she makes, which is an ungodly amount of money. Um, she makes a quarter of a million dollars a year. It's very much, you know, having sat at that board meeting, when we went to the board meeting and a few of us, you know, sat and gave testimonials as to why we think that them presenting a transphobic speaker is a bad idea. It's pretty clear that the Toronto Public Library system, but the board and the people managing it, it's a business and it's about money to them. It's not about people. Mm -hmm. which is counterintuitive to how a lot of libraries, I think, run. And I've heard from a lot of librarians. With the, the thing that really hit me very hard when we started talking about this and when attention started being paid to it is a lot of librarians were reaching out to me and saying, I'm sorry that this is happening and this is not how librarians operate. 
so you know i feel bad because i i think the action looked like we were mad at the library we were mad at librarians and it's like well that's not true and you know the staff the the toronto public library workers union was on our side they publicly supported you know the fight against this and and it's it's been really weird to see but it's been very obvious that the tpl system is like uh, just another large capitalist empire they're concerned about the bottom line and they're concerned about money and they're they're less so concerned about they keep playing this game of oh we care about trans people but like but you don't because you don't engage with us and you don't listen to us mm-hmm. yeah that is something that i've been thinking about a lot because in public libraries there's been this real push in like the last decade to do what is being called community-led work mm-hmm. and um, it's really focused on relationship building especially with people who have had barriers to access in libraries who are socially vulnerable or marginalized in some way and it really seems that in this case both in Toronto and Vancouver the libraries are like yeah but we've done all this work with the pride society or whatever all this relationship building and that's really important to us but the fact of the matter is when push comes to shove when it actually matters to listen to mm-hmm. trans people who are making it's pretty rare that you get that many people out to a public library board meeting like people are showing up like you all did and and speaking out and and saying we want you to listen they don't so going forward, how, what do you think that's going to look like for those relationships, you know, in future? There's all these people who've said, no, we're not going to work with the library again. I'm curious. To be honest, I'm curious, too. I know a lot of organizations like TCAF, the Toronto Comic Arts uh, um, Festival or, or Foundation or whatever the F stands for in their acronym, you know, they publicly sort of admonish them for that. I know that Pride Toronto wrote their message similar to, I believe, what happened in Vancouver with mm-hmm. this exact same situation that we saw play out through, through the VPL. Um, and then the, I know that VPL was disinvited from being involved in Pride in Vancouver. Yeah, and UBC. Uh, yeah, so I'm curious to see. I tweeted about it again last night because it was just like, it feels like it's gone away. Like, it feels like we've stopped talking about this person that kind of bullied us all and was sold as this sort of, hero of the little people like she really got turned into a folk hero by these op-eds in the global mail and all these other things meanwhile we were sort of us trans people were getting stomped on there's been no real i as far as i've seen i know people have messaged me and said we're working on stuff behind the scenes but i don't really know what happens next but i think just because we are seeing these public conversations about the concept of free speech be played out in public like we just again we saw it play out with don cherry now we're seeing it with uh, that woman that was on The Social, which is a TV show nobody knew existed until they found out there was a woman they could be mad at on it. And now all of a sudden, you know, people are boycotting CTV over free speech, which is mind boggling to me. But that's the, the way that, you know, an angry rabble works. But I don't really know what the next step is. And I don't really know where we go from here. And I wish we did. And maybe that's just because I had to sort of take a I had to distance myself from it a little bit at a certain point because you can only get so many death threats in your email inbox before you think, okay, I'm going to stop talking about this for a little while because I need the the anger to go away for a little while. And, you know, I need to stop losing friends because I was seeing friends turn transphobic and that's a difficult thing to watch, you know? So I, at a certain point, had to sort of take a step back from it. And I'm just now sort of starting to reach out and say like, well, where do we go from here? And I think that's the thing with a lot of these sorts of actions, you do sort of need to take a break before you do next steps. I mean, there's talk of, 
you know, it would be nice. I've seen the makeup of their board. It would be nice to have some wider representation in a board. You know, I've worked for not-for-profits a lot in my life and a lot of really well-run boards do have diversity mandates. And while that feels like you're checking boxes, you know, diversity makes everybody stronger and it would be nice to see there is people of color on their board, which is great, but it would be nice to see it's very male dominated. It seems very straight. Like it seems like, you know, it would be nice to see some wider diversity be represented on their board. And maybe that would create a bit of accountability because right now, you know, everybody was against us. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, a, we had a city councilor that also is a city member of the TPL board that tweeted out his decision before we even sat down to give our depositions. And that stuff just goes nowhere and that, because that's the way the power dynamics work, right? Those people can do whatever they want. And unfortunately, even though we can convince a thousand people to flood the streets, that doesn't really amount to policy change necessarily. We need to still sort of make that action happen next and work off that energy. And I, mean, I know that somebody's planning something. I just don't know what. Yeah. Yeah, well, as you say, it's going to be interesting to see because I know I saw that the city passed some kind of motion, your Toronto City Council. They passed a motion to take another look at the way that they rent public spaces. So, you know, we know that I think if 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 somebody was to take that at surface value, it looks great of like, okay, I know my mom called me and she's like, hey, you did it. They're changing the policy. I'm like, no, they're agreeing to look again at the policy. They're not changing yeah. anything. You know, that's the way that policy works. You don't change policy overnight. And I, I know that it's an unfortunate downside of the way the government works. But I know that that's the way the system works. So they have passed a motion to take another look at the way that city facilities rent and manage the facilities they offer up. So we'll see how that where that goes. But again, you know, without proper consultation, without involving, you know, more underserved and minority communities, who knows what that means? Yeah. Well, and even Toronto's policy at face value looked like it was strong enough to say no to this in the first place and they chose to right so I think there's really a question of who's making those decisions right and Vickery Bowles decided not to and she ultimately you know she makes this final call I think what the really interesting thing about this whole thing has been us seeing how this system operates because when we think of a library I come from, from a small town you know I grew up in the Yukon I'm from Whitehorse originally well I was born in Terrace but I you know I grew up in Whitehorse And so I come from places with small libraries and those libraries are, you know, not necessarily the most well-funded, unfortunately, and, you know, they're safe places and they're run by people that care and they're run by communities and they're run with community consultation. And we're seeing that that's not the case here. You know, we are seeing this very um, hierarchical system where one person is making a decision and the rest of the board is backing her up, which, you know, knowing how boards and paid staff operate, you know, she really answers to that board of people, but it seems like it's the other way around, which yeah. happens with a lot of not-for-profit sectors or, or or organizations that are set up in that fashion. But yeah, them looking at the policy, I mean, the policy for the TPL was infamously used in the argument with the Vancouver Public Library, yeah. where they said, well, this is how Toronto does theirs. And that really bit us in the ass at the end of the day, because <laughs> just because that's how Toronto does theirs apparently doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty sad to see that happen. I mean, we're talking about a library that rented a space to Nazis two years ago in 2017. Yeah. And she, Victory Bowles, mentioned it multiple times in this way of like, if I rented, if I had a room for rent and somebody was renting it and somebody was like, just so you know, those renters are Nazis, I would feel a lot of guilt about that. 
she but she almost she keeps bringing like nobody's saying like hey what about that time you rented to nazis she's like hey do you want to hear about the time i rented to nazis like well no one's asking you this (laughs) yeah yeah i think it it points to something libraries we have this value in all of our library associations and you know value statements blah 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 of intellectual freedom Mm -hmm. and there's some really important stuff to intellectual freedom it carries weight but at the same time well on our podcast and I know personally Karen and I and a lot of other librarians that I know are also very committed to this idea that libraries can't aren't neutral right Mm -hmm. like you can't say oh intellectual freedom means anything goes for anyone ever and I think that this you know, these events at Vancouver and Toronto and at SFU, UBC, this is happening in a lot of places and it's causing librarians to really rethink what are the limits and how we've been thinking about intellectual freedom. How does this need to change to have more of an analysis of power dynamics, you know, of the impacts of different kinds of ideas, things like that. You talked about this a bit earlier because, you you know, you mentioned already Bill C-16 and, and that, but do you have any other thoughts on how libraries, you know, things we should be keeping in mind as we reevaluate these ideas or other ways of thinking about intellectual freedom that might be more compatible with being supportive of trans rights and I think with that you know that that idea that that something you spoke of which I think is a really valid point of that libraries aren't themselves neutral I mean we see this where we live in a very charged political time more so than when I was younger I'm 37 so I've sort of gone through a few political changes in the, in like the overall grand scheme of things in my life and seeing the way it lives now is interesting because it is much more heated and the idea of centrism is a thing that bothers me now more than ever before partially because you know I've been an out trans person for two years and I do see the privilege of being able to ride the line of being able to say well we're neutral we take no stand in this and we we hear that we've heard this a lot with the library about how the library is a neutral space but really it's not um there's certain lines of thinking there are certain truths that can't really be ignored and yes you know the thing gets getting thrown at us like well the library has mein Kampf. i'm like the library keeping a book for a historical record and the library giving space to nazis is two different things yeah and the same is true for you know, you can have gender critical feminist literature in a library and that's all well and fine. People are allowed to print these things, but to present it is a totally different thing. You're giving credence to these voices. And the thing that we kept asking for and the thing that never really happened was community consultation. Actually talk to us, actually give us a voice. They kept presenting Megan Murphy and the, and her people as these beleaguered, you know, silent voices. And it's just like, uh, these people are not a visible, we're talking about well-off white people. If you're drawing, if you're drawing diagrams of underprivileged communities, that is not them. Like people that generally don't have a worry anywhere in the world, even though they think that trans people are all waiting in the wings, ready to jump out at them and take all the rights away. But, you know, I think a really important thing moving forward is that community consultation. Okay, we're presenting something that has clearly bothered and riled a sector of our community. We need to make sure that we're actively engaging with them. We need to listen to them. We need to hear their voice. People kept telling us that we were trying to shut down free speech, which was not at all the case. She can hold her clan rallies wherever she wants. We just don't want it to happen at a library. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a million places that will rent space to her. She, you know, but to choose a library takes the library away from us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an important thing for, the, for people to keep in mind moving forward is those community consultations go a long way. And in real 
you know, don't pay lip service to a community. Don't just say, well, we support trans people, but never talk to trans people, never bring us in, never pay a consultant that is a trans person themselves or works with trans communities to come in and say, these are the these are the needs of our community. This is what we're asking for. You know, we're all pleasant, peaceful people. We don't want to be protesting in the streets. I wanted to be at home making dinner with my partner that night. Instead, we we're I was, you know, protesting for 10 hours. Yeah. It's it's a difficult thing, and you're right. Like a, a library is not as politically neutral as you know. I think we've traditionally believed. Mm-hmm. There has to be. You don't have to take a hard line stance necessarily, but you do have to consider the things that you're presenting as intellectual discourse, for lack of a better phrase. It kept being called a debate, but it's not a debate because it's just one person speaking. That's not a debate. And we saw the same thing at SFU when they had a debate panel that was four people that literally all work together. Yeah you need to really consider the intellectual merits of what you're presenting. And if it's just somebody with an agenda, whatever that agenda may be, you know, that's a tricky subject. Mm -hmm. Now you've already, you touched on this in in what you were just saying, you know, the impact on your time, your energy. You talked earlier about some of the really violent messages and stuff that you've received. And I think that that's something too, that I, that sometimes speaking to colleagues, people don't realize is the actual effects of hosting Megan Murphy. Do you want to speak at all more to that or? Yeah, I mean, presenting somebody like that, you know, in one way, like I said earlier too, you know, it gives, it gives credence to her voice. It gives a backing to what she has to say. uh, And it gives a community um, that maybe is worried about trans people already because, you know, people are largely misinformed about trans people and trans rights. And because transphobic people have their martyr, they have uh, Jessica Yaniv, who is the trans person they keep throwing out and saying, well, here's an abuser, like, you know, the gall of straight white men pointing out one person as being indicative of an entire kind of person being abusive is just like, you are, you are dancing around a fire with gasoline, my friends. (laughs) we can't take one person and say like you're all bad but that's sort of what has happened and you know it creates unrest and for for people that are you know i i am an out publicly out trans person i haven't been in the closet in two years and and you know i'm normally very proud of my identity and very happy with it but it does create especially me because i was on the news you know the national here in my house you know, that visibility creates a lot of fear because now people are angry and they've been riled up and they've been told that we're trying to take their rights away and we're trying to squash free speech and and we're sort of, we're sold as villains and that creates uh, an atmosphere of unrest. And then, you know, I get DMs, I get emails. I had people, I had a guy from Texas find me on Facebook and send me a death threat on oh, Facebook yeah. Messenger and just like, you don't even you don't even live in my country. You've got your a you've got your own problems to worry about. But b like that's the sort of thing that that thing does is it creates fear and people's knee jerk reaction to fear is to get angry, especially and I hate to pigeonhole it, but especially men they get really aggressive and their first reaction is you know I would see a lot of things like well if I saw somebody that looked like that walk into my wa- washroom after my daughter I'd kill them, and that is totally fine. When we talk about free speech, somebody's allowed to say that. And that is, you know, I can report it. It may or may not be removed from Twitter, but that's totally fine to say. It kicks up that sort of dust and it creates a really aggressive atmosphere. And it's really hard to come down from that. You know, it was like four weeks of every day, all of us that were being loud about it, myself um, and Gwen and a lot of other people, Megan Jones, 
we were all getting messages from people every day. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a hard thing when you're just, we're just arguing for our, trying to argue for our side and be given a voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people will point to me and say, well, you wrote for the Huffington Post. Like I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post the day of the protest. I never wrote anything about what it is we were trying to accomplish in the three weeks we spoke about it leading up to it. Yeah, let's talk about the media coverage because you wrote on having to post. You t- you've talked a lot about it a lot on Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. About the lack of trans perspectives, like you said earlier, too, this kind of glorification of Megan Murphy and a bunch of national papers and these op-eds and stuff published in support of her. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, played a part in that, and thank you for like calling us on that too with our last episode, where the main chunk of it was Alicia Elliott, but. It's kind of a double-edged sword because when you get the media, you get the hate. But also, yeah. if you don't get the media, nobody's hearing your perspective on it. It is a really interesting one, and like you said, it is a double-edged sword. And I, I, you know, I know I came off pretty aggressive when I when I like sort of posted about that episode with Alicia when it went off. And it, and it was funny because Alicia herself was messaging me and was like, "Hey, I'm getting media requests, and I don't think I should be the one to do them. Do you want to do them?" But it was just frustrating because it felt like, again, we were never really being given a voice. We're always sort of being talked about. And then, you know, all these interviews and even when people say, like, well, you're on the National, you're on CTV. Other than the National, where I was front ended, all the conversations with us where we'd be interviewed for an hour and then we'd be one line at the end of an interview. You know, and you could really tell that a lot of people weren't really interested in talking to us because, you know, they think we're gross or whatever, or they, they, they don't really put a lot of weight behind what it is we're saying, which goes back to this point of our rights being able to be a thing of public debate means that people don't necessarily take us seriously, even though a lot of us are highly educated people that can do a lot of good advocating for our side. And that's all we're trying to do is advocate for our rights. But you know, we just, we were seeing it time and again, you know, either trans people not being part of the conversation. And I understand completely why, you know, the three, the three authors that wrote the petition, Alicia, Carrie Ann, and oh, the third name is failing me right now. Pardon me? Catherine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the three of them, I understand why they got a lot of media attention. You know, they're, they're three name authors. They're, they're people with, you know, a lot of social media following and that sort of things. They're all people that, well, that's a name you can put in a document or put in an interview and people will take notice because it's a name they recognize. If they put Nico Stratus in there, everybody's going to be like, well, well, who's that? You know, so I understand the knee-jerk reaction to, and they got a lot of attention. That uh, petition got over 8,000 signatures. Mm-hmm. So I understand, on one hand, people's desire to reach out to them because they were doing a lot of that legwork, but nobody was also reaching out to the trans community. The community directly affected and said, well, what do you people think about this? I hate that I just said you people because I hate that phrase. But like, uh, well, like you know, what 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 does your what do you, what do you have to say? And, and not only that, but not just talking to one or two of us. You know, they'll always they always time and again when I see a lot of this stuff, it's they'll talk to like a trans man or a trans masculine person, which is totally all well and fine. But trans men aren't really affected in this conversation in the same way because the conversation right now is centered around women. And trans women specifically. That's who Megan Murphy targets. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like trans men aren't the target in the same way. They're targets in their own way. And I, and by no means, I'm trying to throw trans men under the bus and say they're fine. They definitely have their problems. Um, but you know, this argument is specifically about trans women. And then they would, you know, they'd reach out to allies. And maybe that's an issue of organization. Maybe they just can't see. You know, like they can look at something like 519. 
um, or Glad or whoever, and they can reach out to them and just be like, well, you know, we reached out to a queer organization. We did our we did our bit, but it's like, did you actually talk to somebody that's specifically affected by this? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Are there any other things you want to discuss or things you want to mention we haven't touched on? I, I, I don't know. I feel like, I, I definitely feel like we've, we've covered uh, all the necessary ground. My thing is just, and it is all of my argument, it's what my Huffington Post piece was about, is just talk to trans people. Yeah. Engage with us, you know, make us part of the conversation. Don't just buy our trauma, um, which is what everybody wants from a, a smaller community of, of individuals, is they really like to know that we're suffering for some reason. But we have a lot of success stories, and we could tell those if people would give us a voice. Yeah. And if we weren't constantly fighting for our rights to do things like use the bathroom. Yeah, so much more could be done. Yeah. Beautiful energy. Well, thank you, Nico, for thank chatting. Thank you so much. We'll link to your Huffington Post piece, and we'll link to you on Twitter. But do you want to tell people where they can find you? I think I'm Nico Stratus everywhere. This is a recently new name for me. I've only been using it for the last three or so months. But I think I've changed my information everywhere. So I'm at Nico Stratus on all social media stuff. My website is NicoStratus.com. I think that's about it. Okay. Well, thanks so much. And yeah. we'll keep in touch because I'm sure more is going to happen on this. And maybe we'll chat again someday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Nico. In next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Shelby Miller about her work as a trans employee at Vancouver Public Library and the research she's doing for her MLIS thesis about the information-seeking behavior of transgender individuals. In the meantime, we can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod, that's organizing with a Z, not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com. Bye!